0: Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the 2023 Pride Month Law Notes episode of the podcast and it's hard to believe how much has happened in the LGBTQ legal world since we sat down for the May episode. Thankfully, I'm joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Law Notes to take us through the key developments. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month, we're focusing in on a handful of cases impacting incarcerated individuals, particularly transgender people and people living with HIV. Later in the program, we'll be joined by a 2023 Fordham University School of Law graduate to discuss her recently published law review article on gender-affirming health care for trans patients and the First Amendment's (laughs) free speech clause. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us.
1: It's wonderful to be here with you.
0: Well, it's not every month that we get to talk about a class action lawsuit, but today we're doing just that.
1: Okay. Uh, Monroe Bauman is pending in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Illinois before Chief U.S. District Judge Nancy J. Rosenstengel. And that is a name that should be very familiar to uh, Law Notes readers, if not to our podcast listening audience, uh, because it seems over the past year or so, Almost every issue of Law Notes has had a uh, litigation note or an article about uh, transgender incarcerated individuals who are litigating in Illinois about their treatment by IDOC, the Illinois Department of Corrections. And since life is too short to say Illinois Department of Corrections, every time we refer to them, we just refer to them as IDOC. IDOC had... Terrible, terrible record on dealing with trans, transgender individuals. And so many issues have arisen. And a lot of the prisons, both federal prisons and state prisons in Illinois, actually are in the southern part of the state and within uh, Judge Rosenstengel's district. And a lot of those opinions, although not all, have gravitated to her. So she seems to have taken a very personal interest in this area and has devoted time and effort to it far beyond what we've seen from many district judges elsewhere in the country. And so shining a light on what's going on is important. She has certified a class action on behalf of transgender incarcerated individuals in the Illinois system. And it is wide ranging. It covers just about every aspect of problems that may arise. She has appointed co-monitors to monitor the uh, responses of the prison officials to her orders. And she has ordered so many things. She uh, has ordered, let's see, that they have monthly meetings, monthly meetings of the monitors with the prison officials who are in a position to take action and with representatives from the plaintiff's class to report on progress to her. And if they miss the deadlines, she's after them. She has actually threatened individuals in the prison system with contempt for not just missing deadlines, but egregiously missing deadlines. And then when they finally respond with their reports, they're reporting that they haven't made progress. So the issues that are addressed, going through the, uh, the opinion, I, I noticed five different categories of issues. First is private showers for transgender individuals because there were real privacy issues because transgender individuals generally are housed in the prison consistent with their gender as indicated on their birth certificate rather than the gender in which they're living. And so... If you if you and and in prisons you don't generally have private showers you have group shower stalls showers without individual stalls generally, and so they are if they're showering with everyone else they have to be naked in front of people who will look at them and will say hey there's a woman in our shower in the men's prison or hey there's a man in our shower in the women's prison so privacy of showering usually it's to schedule showers at times when no one else is showering and to have a guard on duty to prevent anyone from coming in while they're showering. But it seems that the prison system was very negligent about this and that they were not consistent about allowing them to have private showers. And sometimes some of these inmates were going for weeks without a shower, which uh, doesn't conduce to good health, to sanitation and to a nice smelling uh, cell. (laughs) So that's, that's the first issue. The second, searches. Whenever inmates are taken out to go somewhere, they're searched for contraband. Uh, they have visitors. They're searched for contraband. There's, you know, because there's a big flow of contraband into prisons. Things that could be used as weapons, drugs, all sorts of things. And who is going to search a transgender incarcerated person? Is it gonna be a guard of the same sex, the same gender? Do we treat those two as different things? You know, Who is gonna do the search? And the preference, and we're, we're usually talking about transgender women who are incarcerated in a men's prison, they would prefer to have a woman perform the search, female guard, as opposed to a male guard. Well, there's not always a female guard available in a men's prison. You've gotta make special arrangements sometimes. And there are reports that still, at times, searches are being done by guards or corrections officers, to give their formal title, uh, of the wrong gender under the terms of the order that uh, Judge Stengel has given. Third, housing transfers were needed for safety or therapeutic purposes. Inmates, especially inmates who are facing dangers from other inmates, threats, things of that sort. One way to take care of the problem is to transfer them to a different part of the prison where they wouldn't come into contact if it's a large enough prison with the people who are threatening them or transfer them to another prison. The Illinois system has lots of prisons. It's a big uh, prison system. But there's an inconsistency there and a lack of firm policies, real difficulties. People apply for transfers, they turn down without explanation, things of that sort. In fact, we, we have some recent cases in law notes who are uh, involving transfer issues, not only in the Illinois system, but in other systems. And it is a constant problem. Uh, so that's another area that's addressed. A third, Another area, fourth area, is availability and appropriate monitoring of hormones for individuals who are taking what are referred to as cross-sex hormones in order to maintain their gender identity. Sometimes... They feel that the prescription is incorrect. Their hormones are getting are either too strong or not strong enough. They're not being consistently given. There are gaps in treatment, things of that sort, which cause all kinds of problems. So uh, that's another issue that's addressed. And availability of appropriate gender-affirming commissary items. That is usually what we're talking about is clothing, but... You know other uh, other uh, beauty aids and things of that sort, and if you are in a male prison, they may not ordinarily stock the kind of stuff you want to buy if you're a female inmate. You know, uh, and and so things have to be special ordered, and frequently they're disappointed, and sometimes they tell, well, we just don't stock that, and the judge says, well, you you have to provide this too. Now we should keep in mind, this is in the Southern District of Illinois. The Seventh Circuit has been pretty decent on transgender issues. In some other circuits, this would not be something that the the court would be monitoring. In the Eleventh Circuit, they said, you you are not entitled to all these commissary items as a matter of the Eighth Amendment, according to Eleventh Circuit decision. Uh, So it depends what circuit you're in. And then finally, scheduling and performance of gender-affirming surgery. Now We are not at the point in many of the circuits, perhaps most of the circuits, where we actually have a precedent saying that a transgender incarcerated person with severe gender dysphoria whose doctor says they need gender-affirming surgery, some circuits haven't advanced to the point of saying they're entitled to it, but they are in the Seventh Circuit, although we haven't had a lot of uh, transgender-affirmative uh, surgery being performed yet. But the problem in Illinois is there are a lot of people, evidently, who have been approved for it, but very few have gotten it because the system insists on using one doctor. who's pretty backed up. I mean, this doctor's practice is not limited to incarcerated persons. This, they, don't usually, they usually go outside the prison system for gender-affirming surgery. They don't have specialists in the system. I think in some of the largest states, there might be a a big enough volume of business that they would uh, have to have a specialist. But in Illinois, they have one. And that person basically will do one prisoner maybe every six months or something like that. They have a long waiting list. And Rosenstengel has been after them on this, says there are other doctors in Illinois who can do this surgery. You, you really, you have to uh, identify more doctors and you have to improve the scheduling of this uh, so that there aren't these long waiting periods. Part of the problem is some individuals are slated for release and they've been struggling for years to get this surgery done. And if they're released from prison before the surgery is done, that Act to square one to try to get it out in the, in the world and to try to have it covered by insurance. And if there isn't a place where Medicaid is making a fuss about this, and that's going to be one of our uh, important stories in the July issue of Law Notes, I can tell you now, there are some June decisions already on Medicaid, because there's litigation in, in multiple states on the issue of Medicaid exclusions for gender-affirming surgery. So you know, that's... So I've, I've identified six, half a dozen distinct issues. Uh, and in this uh, case on May 11th, Rosenstengel reviewed the current status of all of this and said, look, it's time for you guys to get on the ball. You're way behind complying with my orders. My threat to impose uh, some kind of sanctions stands. And uh, I'm setting firm deadlines now. You've really got to comply with them. You've got to, uh, we have reports that several prisons in the system have done nothing about the private shower situation, that we have commissaries that are still falling short of stocking the items that transgender individuals want to order. The hormone situation is varying from place to place. You've got to get your ducks in order. You've got to get some formal policies written where there are only informal policies. And you have to have people in the system who have been given responsibility for compliance. You have to designate people. It can't be a free-floating thing that varies from institution to institution. So I think it's important to people to know that this is going on. We do have at least one state in which there is a major class action going on. And so far, Judge Rosenstengel has definitely not lost interest. And we should also, giving credit where credit is due, most of the people who are working on this case are with the ACLU, or cooperating attorneys at law firms that are working with the ACLU. Kirkland and Ellis is involved with this in a big way. King and Spaulding. We have uh, the ACLU, the Roger Baldwin Foundation, which is the ACLU of Illinois. Lots of attorneys, too many to mention by name. This is a whole long list that we've appended to our article in this issue of Law Notes. Uh, We should mention, though, that Judge Rosenstengel was appointed by President Obama. And when we're looking at these cases, although not invariably, sometimes judges appointed by Trump or George W. Bush issue good decisions, but most of the decent decisions that we get in these uh, inmate cases come from judges appointed by President Obama. President Biden now has a fair, fairly high number of new federal district court judges. I think he's, he's had 100 federal district court judges at this point, confirmed in uh, just two years. And there are still judges appointed by Bill Clinton sitting on the bench. Many of them are senior judges, but a lot of senior judges, they may have officially retired from being active judges, but many of them maintain reasonably active dockets. I mean, they're allowed to serve for life. When they they say they're taking senior status, that just means the president can appoint someone else to be an acting judge uh, to occupy that slot in the district court. But uh, they can continue to sit on cases, and many of them sit very actively. Sometimes they travel, they go by designation and sit in other districts uh, because there are a lot of short-handed districts. Congress really needs to create more federal district court judgeships, and the Senate has to move faster on confirming because there are some long, lagging vacancies. But enough on, on the uh, Illinois case. We should go to some of the others.
0: Well, thank you for highlighting that. That's really exciting news to hear. It sounds like there's a lot of promise there. Staying within the carceral system vein, so to speak, but pivoting to a very different issue within that system. I understand next up, we have a case that goes into issues with HIV status disclosure.
1: Yeah, this is a pretty big issue. HIV status of incarcerated persons. And actually, it's, it's the next two, uh, two cases that we have. Well, one of the issues is access to treatment. Another one of the issues is the safety of HIV-positive inmates, because it turns out that if the fact that they're HIV-positive becomes known, they can really be in danger. For one thing, many prisoners will assume that an inmate who's HIV-positive is gay, and as odd as this may seem, you would think that they would, that they would want to stay away. You know, they'd be afraid of being infected. And, but this isn't about them having sex. This is about assaults. This is about harassment. This is about name calling. Uh, this is about theft. This is about all kinds of problems that an HIV positive inmate who is known to be HIV positive will encounter from from other inmates and sometimes from correction officers as well. So they want their HIV status to be kept confidential. They say this is confidential medical information and I have a right for it to be confidential. What happens if a healthcare provider spills the beans by talking about their HIV status in the presence of other inmates or of corrections officers? And uh, we report on a case in the June issue of Law Notes. It's by one of our cooperating, our contributing writers, Willie Martinez, who's an associate in a law firm over in New Jersey. This is a, a case uh, that arises in the Northern District of Illinois, <laughs> staying in Illinois uh, before uh, senior U.S. District Judge uh, Matthew F. Kennelly, who was appointed by Bill Clinton back in the 1990s. And. It involves a doctor who is employed by a contractor at the Will County, Illinois Adult Detention Facility. And it's not unusual. Many, many prison systems contract the provision of health care to the inmates instead of employing directly medical staff. And it's it's very common practice. But when when a company has uh, been contracted to provide medical services, most courts agree that they are subject to the same constitutional requirements that employees of the prison system would be. That is, they are acting sort of as a quasi-governmental agency in that situation. And, And sometimes state laws get very, very detailed about this. We once ran into a situation involving Florida and we discovered that there's a Florida statute that says that the qualified immunity doctrine, which can be available to individual government employees when they violate somebody's constitutional rights in a way that is not clearly forbidden by precedent, they may have qualified immunity from personal liability for doing that. And Florida says, and the uh, company and its employees who are contracted to provide health care in Florida prisons may not raise a qualified immunity claim. So, and, and that was important in a case that we were reporting on where we actually filed an amicus brief on behalf of an inmate. But in this case, the inmate is HIV positive, and the inmate had applied to be employed as a pod worker at the facility. There's no explanation in this opinion as to what a pod worker is or does, but presumably, it's someone who would have uh, certain kinds of tasks to perform. And the, uh, the inmate visited the doctor to get medical clearance to be employed as a pod worker. And the doctor informed the inmate that the, the prison's policy would not allow him to work as a pod worker because he was HIV positive which classified him in the terminology of that institution as a level three risk. So he couldn't work as a pod worker and he was very upset about this. He's taking medication, his HIV is undetectable. He doesn't present any risk of infection to anyone else and he's healthy. And there was a heated exchange we're told by the court and the inmate testified that the doctor in the presence of other incarcerated individuals and prison staff yelled at him, you are a level three. You cannot be a fucking pod worker. You have HIV. Okay, so he spilled. he's cursed at him. He spilled the beans. It's undisputed that a deputy who allowed the inmate to go to the bathroom for a minute to clean himself up, observed that he was visibly upset with tears rolling down his eyes after the incident. And after informing the deputy that the doctor just said my diagnosis out loud, now I have to be afraid for my safety. And he was returned to his cell and he filed a complaint about the doctor. The doctor was formally disciplined and issued a final written warning which stated he was being, quote, disrespectful and unprofessional towards a patient at custody staff and he violated HIPAA, a federal statute that governs the confidentiality of, uh, of medical information. But as a result of this incident, the inmate alleges that he was subjected to an assortment of physical, emotional, and sexual violence. He testified that he was constantly worried about being attacked. And so he was showering alone. And he's not transgender, so he's not concerned about you know private showers. Uh, showering alone, he, was re- he had requested a single person cell because he was afraid uh, he would end up with a cellmate who was homophobic and he might get beaten up. On one occasion, he was sexually harassed by one incarcerated individual who groped him. He was physically attacked several times by other incarcerated individuals, including one who broke a chair over his head. Some gay inmates are really picked upon when it's discovered that they're gay. He testified that he was never expressly confronted by incarcerated individuals regarding his HIV status following this disclosure, he said he heard other incarcerated individuals speaking about his HIV status more times than he could count. The uh, defendants, individual defendants, the doctor being the principal individual defendant, moved for summary judgment. They contested the inmates' account of what happened. And the court said this means that There's a key factual question that's generally disputed in this case, which means you don't get summary judgment. That forecloses summary judgment. And the court said the evidence provided so far would permit a reasonable jury to find a causal connection between the doctor's conduct and the inmates' claimed injuries. It was undisputed that he was physically attacked, sexually harassed, and that staff observed him in an emotional state after the incident. So the court said that he had a viable invasion of privacy claim under the 14th Amendment due process clause. Due process guarantees, quote, the right not to have one's private affairs made public by the government. Whether that's still the case after Dobbs, we don't know. You know, so much about substantive due process has been placed into the uh, question mark range now after Dobbs. We don't know how cases like this would come out. And The Supreme Court is assiduous in denying cert petitions in inmate cases. They very rarely take up an inmate case. We don't have any Supreme Court uh, precedents at all about HIV positive inmates. Amazingly, you know, decades into the epidemic with loads of prisoner litigation in the lower courts, somehow it never gets up to the Supreme Court. Similarly with uh, transgender issues, We've only had two decisions by the Supreme Court directly involving transgender issues in history. The first is the D. Farmer case from decades ago with safety issues and, and whether a prison can be held liable under the Eighth Amendment when transgender individuals get raped and under what circumstances. And then we have the Bostock case in which one of the plaintiffs was a transgender person who was fired by their employer because they were transitioning. That's it. The Supreme Court otherwise has totally skirted transgender issues. I think we're going to suddenly see a change in that because we have all this litigation going on now around the country about our prohibition on gender affirming care, et cetera, et cetera. The Supreme Court's going to have to grapple with these. And so far, we've had very good luck from the trial courts uh, on these cases. We've had a lot of preliminary injunctions, and we even started to get uh, permanent injunctions. We have one we'll be reporting out in July from Florida. So uh, those cases, if they get appealed, are likely uh, to get Supreme Court attention at some point. But for now, the court has very little way of guidance below the uh, circuit court level. The judge opined the record would readily allow a reasonable jury to conclude that the doctor's disclosure exposed the inmate to increased danger, that the doctor knew that revealing the inmate's HIV status would expose him to increased risk of harm, That the doctor had a responsibility not to disclose highly sensitive medical information, particularly the kind that would put the inmate at increased risk of harm, and that the doctor was at a minimum deliberately indifferent to the risk of harm that would follow his revelation of the inmate's HIV status. So there was ample evidence to support a due process claim of state creative danger. There was also a claim of responde superior against the contractor employed the doctor and the uh, contractor said, well look in, in prisoner cases there's a general rule that management people don't have any kind of at superior liability unless it's shown that they were personally involved in some way or they established a policy that's unlawful And the judge rejected that he said a reasonable juror could find that the doctor was acting in his capacity as an employee of wellpath the contractor, when interacting with a patient about his medical condition at the time of the incident. And the incident occurred while the doctor was on duty. In the course of his employment, the company actually disciplined the doctor for his conduct. That's enough, said the judge, to enable a jury to find well path liable for the doctor's alleged actions. And uh, the court also rejected the uh, contractor's argument that an Affordable Care Act claim that was also being made here was preempted by the constitutional claim. So the court denied the defendant's motions for summary judgment, all the defendant's motions for summary judgment. Successful case. And and once again, Judge Kennelly was appointed by President Clinton. And this was a case where the inmate was actually represented by private counsel. Most of our inmate cases involve pro se which is why most of them are not so interested to report about because usually the pro se cases are knocked out because the plaintiff doesn't know how to plead a case. And so their complaint is lacking in sufficient detail to satisfy pleading requirements. Uh, Those are usually dismissed without prejudice. And sometimes with a kindly judge or magistrate's instructions to the inmate about what to do on your amended complaint so that you can survive uh, the motion for summary judgment or screening in that case, since they're pro se. They don't even get served on the defendant until the uh, court has screened them to see whether they make a plausible claim. So I mean, there are so many of these twists and turns and ins and outs to the prisoner stuff. But I think it's important that our listeners get an exposure to it now and then, even though most of our uh, focus has been on other issues.
0: So much to unpack there. I'm hearing a lot of stigma still around HIV and misunderstanding, right? It's hard. I know we don't have the specifics of what a pod worker does here, but it's hard to imagine any kind of employment position within the prison, compelled to labor or not, that someone's HIV status would really put others around them at risk. It sounds like there's a lot of outdated rulemaking going on there and stigma. And then just the homophobia that you were describing, that the assumption that somehow only gay people are subjected to HIV, we know that that's long been disproven. And we know that that doesn't really reflect reflect the current numbers in terms of new infections. So
1: Also, um, when you look at the uh, the prison situation, a uh, disproportionate number of prisoners are HIV positive because of IV drug use outside of prison, mm-hmm. and sometimes within the prison. Since uh, works are smuggled in, drugs are smuggled in. And so you you have a problem of shared needles, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean uh, do prisoners really have access to what you need to sterilize a used uh, hypodermic needle? Probably not. I mean, the most they can do is run it underwater and let's hope they have access to hot running water.
0: Yeah, certainly no safe, supervised noodle exchange programs.
1: We have one more prisoner case to discuss. right? And this is also an HIV case. This is an HIV case that points out one of the great difficulties uh, because of the way prison systems are run. Uh, And this is also, I guess this is pure coincidence. This is also out of the Northern District of Illinois. Different judge, Ian D. Johnston, who is a Trump appointee. And one of the issues that we have is that prisons don't allow inmates to bring in drugs from outside. Someone who is on antiviral medication is undetectable as long as they take their medication as prescribed on a regular, faithful basis. They will be undetectable, they won't present a risk to anyone else, and they won't They won't develop full-blown AIDS, the immune deficiency, because the virus is being held in check. And, you know, they come into prison. And uh, as part of the intake process, when someone is convicted, and they're they're given a complete rundown, uh, medical and everything else. And even though they may be very reluctant to reveal their HIV status to anyone, they know they have to, if they're going to get the medication they need. So they have to be able to confide in the doctors and they have to be able to trust that the healthcare workers in the prison system are going to keep their confidence and are not going to subject them to any situation that would reveal that they're HIV positive to other inmates. And here's, here's a situation of an inmate who uh, was getting his uh, HIV medication. And part of uh, getting HIV medication is monitoring the blood of the individual to make sure it's working, you know, to uh, look for the presence of the virus and to know whether you have to adjust the dosage or the frequency of the dosage in order to deal with it. And the, uh, the nurse, I, th- I think it was, yeah, it was a nurse. There were actually two nurses that he's uh, bringing this case against. The nurse, who normally would draw his blood when he's in the medical unit in a private room, so no one could see that they're drawing his blood, or that he's being administered uh, with a retro, antiretroviral medication, although that's usually pills. But also, you know, if you're seen taking pills, the questions are going to arise, why are you taking pills? So, you know, you go to the dispensary and you take it in a, in a private setting. He was told that they wanted to draw his blood through the door of his cell. People could see them drawing blood. He refused. He said, you can't draw my blood out here. And the nurse said, well, if you won't let me draw your blood, I won't give you your medication. And he said, "What well, you, you won't give me my medication. If I don't get the medication, the virus is going to get out of control and I'm going to get really sick. She said, it was too bad. And he was refusing to allow his blood to be drawn. It turned into a big thing. He missed his medication and his HIV progressed to full-blown AIDS. And now he's suing. He, uh, he filed his grievances. He met with the nurse and asked to speak to a qualified physician. And the nurse said, no, I'm in charge. So he was denied uh, seeing a qualified physician to deal with the situation now where his HIV was out of control he finally gave in. He said, all right, you can draw my blood in exchange for the medication. But they continued to withhold the medication. Three weeks after he made his last request to staff, he noticed the lymph nodes in his groin area were swollen. All right. So all of a sudden we we have opportunistic infections, which is the sign that your immune system is not working. Properly. He sent another request to staff, this time requesting a medical examination. The nurse assured him that they would order his labs and blood to be drawn. His blood was ultimately drawn nearly a month later. His HIV antiretroviral medications were then resumed. 71 days had passed since his medication was first withheld, resulting in him developing AIDS. So he brought an action under the Bivens case. That is, you can sue for violation of your constitutional or federal statutory rights. And he was making a Bivens claim. And the issue with Bivens is that the Supreme Court in the Bivens case actually said that you can bring a direct claim for uh, enforcement of your constitutional rights against government agents under the Bivens case even if there is no statutory cause of action, you can sue directly on a constitutional claim. But the Supreme Court has drawn back in many ways, and they've said, we, we limit Bivens to a handful of specific kind of scenarios, and uh, we don't encourage federal courts to extend it further. And so in this case, the defendants are saying Bivens doesn't apply to this situation, and it was up to the inmate to discover, and luckily he's represented by counsel who's got the ability to do research, to discover a case in which federal courts have allowed a Bivens type suit against a healthcare worker in a prison whose failure to provide care as required has resulted in a significant medical injury to the individual patient. So uh, Judge Johnstone made clear that the initial withholding of medication was because of the inmate's own actions in refusing to have his blood drawn in the way proposed by the nurse. The subsequent withholding after he submitted to the blood draw was what made the claim valid. That is, he submitted to the blood draw and they discovered ultimately that his HIV was multiplying. And furthermore, his initial submission to the blood draw did not result in them resuming the medication. He had to file a grievance and it it took time. And so the result was this long delay. And so not only did the judge find that there is other appellate precedent for cases analogous to this, but that there were district court decisions that had extended the Bivens remedy to medical situations of this sort. Uh, So motions to dismiss were denied in this case because she's represented by counsel this isn't a screening case this is a motion to dismiss case uh so the case now proceeds to discovery and one of the uh, big issues in pro se cases is how are you going to handle discovery if a pro se plaintiff actually makes it past screening and makes it pass a motion to dismiss and that's where appointed counsel becomes very important if if someone doesn't have counsel But even there, sometimes we've had judges who have refused. They've said, well, the case isn't that complicated. And the inmate proved capable of finally, after maybe several amendments, filing a complaint that stated a claim. So I'm not going to appoint counsel. So this is another problem we have. Lack of counsel in these cases.
0: It's almost as though they hold it against you if you're successful in representing yourself just enough to get by. Yeah.
1: That seems to be the case.
0: Well, really heartbreaking facts in this case. And it's from on the flip side, it's interesting to think about really how effective ART is that the virus was able to progress to late stage HIV in such a
1: short amount of time. Yeah. It shows that compliance with medication is crucially important. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I know there was a big update in terms of stigma and HIV within the last month that is applicable to everyone, not just people in the carceral system. Would you like to talk about the decision by the US FDA?
1: Yeah, okay. This is a situation where we've been fighting this since the 1980s. Okay, Uh, when the virus was discovered, was isolated, and it was clear that it was being transmitted to people through blood transfusions, the Food and Drug Administration adopted basically a ban on blood donations by anyone who fells, fell into a high-risk category and for HIV. And they just classified men who have sex with men as a high-risk category for HIV. And at first, this was before we even had tests that we could use to screen. I mean, the, the only way you could detect HIV in blood was through a culturing system that was expensive and took a lot of time once they had identified the virus. But once they made uh, the antibody screening tests, which are inexpensive and easy to administer and relatively easy to interpret, they said all donated blood has to be screened for HIV before it can be used, but they didn't abandon the total exclusion of sexually active gay men from donating blood. You would think at that point they would say, well, we'll just test the blood so we don't have to exclude people, which is stigmatizing, especially if you, let's say you work in a workplace and they're doing a blood drive and everyone's lining up to donate blood and you can't because you are excluded. And what if you're not out in that workplace? Are you outing yourself? You know. And what if, and I've heard of cases of this, I there was a case of this among a student here at New York law school who came to me practically in tears after this happened. There was a blood drive and they were collecting blood and he went and uh, they gave him the screening questions and they asked him, are you a sexually active gay man? And he said, yes. And, and there were other people standing around and they said, well, then you can't donate blood. And he was very, he was unaware of this. and He was very upset. So uh, there's been lobbying of the FDA over and over again. And uh, at first the response was, well, it takes people sometimes several months, to develop antibodies after exposure to HIV, during which they would test negative on the screening test, even though there's HIV in their blood, because it isn't screening for the HIV, it's screening for the antibodies, and they aren't there yet. So, you know, at some point, they adjusted it and said, well, sexually active gay men who haven't been sexually active for some extended period of time could donate blood. If they have tested negative for HIV in the interim. Little by little, they've narrowed the exclusion, little by little. And now they're finally said, men who have sex with men are not a separate group because there are men who don't have sex with men who are HIV positive because of other risks. You know, sex is not the only way that HIV is transmitted. It's transmitted through uh, not only through blood transfusions, but through the use of clotting medications that are made for blood products. And that's why hemophiliacs in large numbers early in the epidemic were becoming HIV positive from the medications they were using before they discovered a way of effectively heat treating the medications so it would kill any live virus. But in this situation, now... They say there will be individual screening. We will not have a category. If you're a man who has sex with men, you're automatically excluded. What we're going to do is we're going to individually screen all blood donors. We have a battery of questions. They'll be the same for everybody. The questions that you'll be asked will be uh, your history of infection, your history of needle use, Your uh, have you had any new sexual partners within the three month period prior to the blood donation? Are you taking medications to treat or prevent HIV infection? Because they can cause, they can play havoc with the screening test. Because the screening test is for antibodies, and if you're taking the medication, you've got antibodies, but you're not infected. Uh, so they say that if you're if you're taking PrEP, for example, you should stop taking it for a certain period of time before donating blood, because otherwise there'll be a false positive. And uh, you know they're. Groups that have, have said the new, the new screening uh, criteria are a move in the right direction because we've gotten rid of the categorical exclusion of people based on their sexual orientation, that that was inappropriate and that was stigmatizing. But they said the questions that they're asking are not all appropriate. And some of them are questions that could actually deter people from engaging in activity that would minimize their risk of infection. I mean, if you say, we're not going to uh, take your blood if you had a new sexual partner within the past three months. What if you've used a condom every time? What if you're on PrEP? Well, if you're on PrEP, they'll say, if you haven't stopped taking PrEP for, I think, several months, three months before coming for a blood donation, we're not going to take your blood because the test won't work properly. The screening tests won't work. In other words, there are still critiques to be made. And perhaps there's no ideal solution to this. But at least there's there's some general agreement that doing away with a categorical sexual orientation based exclusion is a good thing. So we're moving closer to where we should be. But obviously, there is a compelling reason to protect the blood supply. There's a compelling reason to prevent transmission of HIV in the course of blood transfusions for medical purposes. Uh, So you know, whether the government would actually come to the point of an ideal solution and what an ideal solution would be are still things that are up for debate.
0: It sounds like this rule change is not only long overdue, but also brings things kind of closer to the current state of medical practice in this area. Do you have anything of note for us before we wrap up? Well, co- that
1: was going to be my of note.
0: So, oh, I'm still your of note.
1: Because we've already discussed three cases, so... I wanted to leave some time for you to have that uh, interesting discussion about this new article, which from its title sounds very, very interesting and provocative.
0: Yes, I'm looking forward to sitting down with Parker. So we'll turn things over to her next. Parker Rose Wingate. Her recent article is an exciting study on a just beginning theory of the right to gender affirming care as symbolic speech protected by the First Amendment. Parker Rose Wingate is a JD graduate of Fordham University School of Law. During her time in law school, she has completed many internships serving the public interest, including a judicial internship in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. Starting in September, 2023, she will be working full-time in the criminal defense practice of the Legal Aid Society in New York. Parker, congratulations on graduating law school, the recent publication, and your position coming up in the fall. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So tell us a little bit about your article Trans Bodies, Trans Speech.
2: I came up with the idea for the article during 1L. I came across an article doing research for some assignment or other for legal writing that talked about uh, symbolic speech protection for tattoos. And I just immediately thought, you know, that kind of sounds like, you know, body modification is body modification and if you're doing it with tattoos or if you're doing it with body piercings or you're doing it with hormone therapy it all kind of just sounds like the same category to me so i put that in a little folder and every time i saw an article that reminded me of it i put that in the folder on was like on westlaw and fairly quickly i had a bunch of articles that were kind of coalescing into the same idea and i decided to use that as the Basis for a term paper for uh, medical law, and the professor loved it and and thought it was uh, spot on and correct and encouraged me to publish it, and I did.
0: A wonderful success. Most of our listeners that tune into the podcast generally tend to be a legal audience, but I know we have some non legal listeners out there, so maybe we could take a step back and break down a few of the concepts here. Can you take us through gender identity? gender expression, and symbolic speech?
2: So gender identity is essentially the the gender that you feel is you. So, um, you know, most people are what we call cisgender, which means that they are the gender that's assigned to them at birth, is what they feel reflects them, and they're perfectly happy with that. And then there's transgender people, which we've all heard a lot about recently, who feel that the gender that they are does not reflect, is not reflected by the gender that's assigned at birth. Gender expression is how we how we tell the world what our gender is. That can be, you know, anything from, you know, a cis a cisgender person growing out a beard to show that they're masculine to a cisgender woman wearing a dress, or for that matter, trans people doing the same thing. And it can also be found through, and this kind of is the segue into the article, it, it can also be expressed through gender-affirming care, which is stuff like hormone therapy or um, gender confirmation surgery, uh, what people may may remember the older term, uh, sex change surgery.
0: Thank you. That's a lovely framework on gender. Could you just remind our listeners, either non-legal or who haven't taken con law in quite some time, what we mean by symbolic speech?
2: So symbolic speech is to differentiate from oral speech. So, so like right now, what we're doing in this podcast is oral speech and that gets full protection through the constitution, the the first amendment free speech clause, but that's not the only type of speech that's protected. So obviously we also have a textual speech, which really just gets rolled into oral speech. Um, But you can also have symbolic speech, which is just actions that people take that convey an idea of some kind or convey meaning. And this can be the famous Supreme Court case that a lot of people would be aware of uh, would be the students wearing the black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. And so normally you would say that like a black armband is not speech. It doesn't mean anything. But when when your actions do take on a symbolic meaning through like like the context of the greater world, it can become symbolic speech and that gets a level of constitutional protection.
0: So you started to touch on this, but I want to give you more space to talk this through. Can you tell us a little bit more about how HRT can be interpreted as symbolic speech? So
2: I think in a lot of ways, HRT and and pretty much all uh, gender affirming care, but let's focus on HRT for now. You can almost think of it as as largely the purpose of it is communication. It's both communication to yourself, but it's also communication to the world of what your gender is. It changes your body to to match the gender that you feel that you are. And this is, for, for our cisgender audience, this can be very subtle. It can be stuff like skin tone changes that subconsciously everyone looking will probably pick up on, but may not consciously pick up on. And then there are stuff that they will consciously pick up on, trans women growing breasts, trans men growing facial hair. And so it it really creates a lot of changes in the body that others can look at you and immediately pick up more readily on what your gender identity is, even if it differs from the gender assigned at birth.
0: You had mentioned that the idea for this article kind of predates the most aggressive wave of anti-trans legislation. Could you share with us how, especially in the last two years, that wave of anti-trans legislation has impacted your research? It's
2: really made me want to get it right. And so, and to get it out there. Part of it was also just deciding, no, I'm not going to just do this after I graduate or I'm not going to put this on the back burner, but I really made it a priority um, around last summer. When things had really started to pick up in terms of anti-trans legislation, it's it's also impacted it in some ways. It's, it's made it easier because, uh, believe it or not, the bans have been very sloppy. And we just had two more uh, preliminary injunctions last night on trans healthcare bans in Kentucky and Tennessee. And that is now um, six victories for trans parties in these cases and zero for the states. Because as I said, they've just been very sloppy. And they have often, uh, it's been very clear that they're working with very religiously animated, malicious parties, let's call them, to craft these laws. And when you're writing about, in part of the article, I get into why safety concerns are a fig leaf for, for these bands. And when you have like, there were email leaks from some of the, the lobbyists talking about how internally about how much they didn't like trans people. They wanted to erase them. They, they, this was like a God, an ungodly abomination, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you can connect that, those opinions directly to the lobbying efforts it may not be a, a perfect constitutional argument for reasons we don't have to that are they're kind of a deep dive. But to a reader, it really does make the connection that like when when you hear safety concerns, they are they are fake leaves. They're not they're not real. They're they're not really concerned about them. They're using them as an excuse.
0: A hundred percent. Do you want to give us a little bit of a preview of parts three and parts four of your article? Uh yeah. So
2: the Part three is about the uh, relevant case law on gender expressive speech, um, and and general queer and body modification speech. I'm not going to get into the third party standing part because it's kind of it's necessary for the constitutional argument, but but kind of in the background. Part three starts with, if I'm remembering correctly, the Voo's case out of California, which was the only case law that I could find that ever discussed, or I guess you should say decision that ever discussed gender affirming care as speech in any way. The uh, uh, There was a plaintiff who argued that the local municipality had interfered with her speech as a trans woman and argued that her appearance and her mannerisms and her makeup and her gender affirming health care in the aggregate came together to become symbolic speech of um, gender expression. And unfortunately, uh, that plaintiff lost on unrelated grounds. If I remember correctly, it was basically due to mootness, meaning that there was just it, it was irrelevant whether or not the speech existed because there was nothing the court could do for her. But it was a a called out by the judge in the case as as a plausible argument, which I found was a very, very good little nugget of case law. And there's been a lot of other gender expression-related cases that don't necessarily, that, that don't involve body modification per se. I think one of the most, the most important one that I want to highlight is, I'm going to get the, the name wrong, but I believe it was Zaluska, which was a Second Circuit case that specifically cited a an unpublished case from the lower courts where a trans girl in high school successfully defeated the school's dress code. And the judge essentially said that a trans person dressing in accordance with their gender identity conveys a message. And very helpfully, again, sometimes Bigotry can can actually be helpful to to trans parties in making their constitutional arguments because it kind of casts into relief what's really going on. The judge noted that the, the fact that the school and the student body was so angrily trying to enforce the dress code to stop her from dressing in a feminine manner was in itself proof that the message. Of, of gender identity and gender expression had been received, that the audience did understand the message, which is very important for the constitutional law and the constitutional argument. There have also been some cases on, on using bathrooms that match your gender identity at the federal level, and I go into a few of those. And then I think that the other most important cases from part three are the cases on tattooing, where many jurisdictions have protected tattooing as a form of speech. And those jurisdictions that haven't always protected tattooing as speech never go into the body modification aspect. They, they never complain, they never use that as a basis that because it's body modification, it can't be protected speech. It, it's usually that there's something that they find lacking in the tattoo itself, that the tattoo doesn't convey anything, um, and that it's, it's purely aesthetic. And so those really help boost the argument that, that altering the body can be a form of valid speech. Similarly, the only case that I could ever find on a ban on body piercing uh, was actually very, very similar to what's going on right now with anti-trans legislation. You had people who had like a moral panic, it appeared, of some kind that they didn't like body piercing. And so they passed a municipal ban on it, and the ban said, it's unsafe, and so no one can ever do body piercing here, no exceptions. And the court ruled that this, first of all, body piercing was a form of uh, symbolic speech, and it did get a level of constitutional protection, and that even if the municipality had a valid interest in protecting the safety of piercing customers, that the the wholesale ban, rather than a, a medical safety regimen of some kind, was unconstitutionally overbroad and struck down the ban. And it was, as far as I could tell, I did a lot of research into this case, was never appealed. And so that ruling held. And so again, you you really don't find any cases where speech would be struck down or speech would be ruled unprotected because of body modification which is really the only weakness that you could argue exists in the paper or in the the thesis is that oh well you know body modification is something so different or or so untested by the constitutional law that perhaps that would make the protections weak but the the case law on body modification just doesn't bear that out part 4 essentially evaluates the doctrine for protecting gender-affirming health care, specifically for trans people, with symbolic speech protections, and then examines the constitutionality of um, a ban on gender-affirming care. To simplify things, in order to get protection for symbolic speech, you have to show that there is an intention to send a message, and that that message is on some level understood by an audience. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a, a one-to-one understanding of exactly the message that was intended being completely understood by the audience, but that the audience has to understand some level of there being a message there and some kind of, for lack of a better term, vibe of what the message is. Um, the Supreme Court has has discussed Uh, I believe it was a Jackson Pollock paintings in terms of a situation where there's some kind of a message because it's abstract art. So you know that it's art of some kind and there's some kind of message being expressed, but you don't necessarily, but you don't require the audience to say exactly what was on Jackson Pollock's mind. So that's kind of what you're looking for in terms of getting your foot in the door and getting a level of symbolic speech protection. After that, you have to do what's called O'Brien analysis which essentially asks, is the, the regulation that is banning the speech, is the regulation directly targeting that speech? Or is there a purpo- an, an unrelated purpose and the government regulation is simply incidentally ensnaring speech? So the famous example of that was burning draft cards, again, during the Vietnam War. Someone burned their draft card in an act of protest. And there was a law that said that you couldn't destroy your draft cards. And so when he was arrested for for burning his draft card, the question was, was the law intended to uh, and purely in existence to punish anti-war speech? Or was there a purpose that the law was serving unrelated to suppressing that message? And what the court found in that case was that, Draft cards served a logistical function, and the destruction of them caused governmental problems, and there was a government interest in in keeping draft cards in one piece. And so in that case, you get a lower level of protection, and essentially the government has to show that the, the regulation is not overbroad that the regulation is is basically doing enough to, to meet the government's goal and not going too far over the top. Now you could really, and, and in this section I really get into, this question could really go either way depending on the court. I could really see some courts, although I would disagree with them, I would see some courts who would say, listen, it's obvious that there's some transgender animus, but the government may really be looking to protect transgender patients' health uh, uh, with these laws. And so then they might say that you're gonna get the lower level of of, of protection under O'Brien. And so what I did with my paper is, is briefly say that that would be a decision that I would question, but then I analyzed the bans as if that was what the courts would say. So assuming that the court said, this is just an incidental limitation, it's not directly targeting gender affirming care as speech does the ban hold up so if if the car if, if everything falls in favor of the ban does it still does it hold up then and what i find is that no you have to have a you as the government have to have a valid legitimate interest that you are pursuing under o'brien you can't just say anything is what your goal is. It has to be rational. And all of the research and and all of the factual findings in these cases, if you look at, there's a, a the most, the, the one that I would really recommend is take a look at the Brant v. Rutledge decision out of our, our federal court in Arkansas. The factual findings really bear out that all of these regulations make things less safe. The access to gender affirming care, both for youth and adult trans people, has a staggeringly great effect on preventing suicidal tendencies. It's somewhere in the range of 70% reduction in suicidal thoughts. And if you if you want to see the research on that, it's in one of my footnotes in the paper, and you can go um, read the articles that I cited for that. And so essentially what my my analysis is, is that there's not a rational basis in setting up your trans citizens for a... Staggeringly higher risk of death by suicide. And there are some other arguments in there as well, but I really think that the one that really matters is that the government has to argue to to uphold these bans that there is a rational and legitimate interest that they have. But everything that happens as a result of these bans makes, makes life less safe for the people that they're claiming to protect. And so I argue, um, and I truly believe that that undercuts uh, any argument that these should survive, even if they get the more favorable treatment under O'Brien.
0: I had a question about what happens when the message isn't clearly received, but I think you've answered that and kind of talking through what if someone passes or what if someone is non-binary and maybe their efforts are a little more subtle.
2: Yeah. So it really is, as long as there's some understanding that a message has been received so let's we can go with the non-binary example maybe we have somebody that's portraying as uh particularly feminine they're wearing a dress and makeup and they also have a beard you know it doesn't you don't even have to be queer to understand that there's some kind of message going on there that that that's a deliberate choice they didn't just happen to grow a beard out and and dress that way that was a deliberate choice And as for, uh, quote unquote, passing trans people, by which we mean trans people who are so, whose gender affirming care or makeup routine or what have you is so effective that people can't tell that they're trans and believe that they're cisgender. I would argue it still doesn't matter because all gender uh, expresses a message. When you look at something gendered, you know that it's expressing an idea about gender, even if you don't know that it's being transgressive. We normally think of of messages as as exciting or or particularly uh, important or or unconventional messages when we think of protected speech, but there are also messages that are are kind of perfectly mundane. And I think that like a cisgender man having a beard could be a perfectly mundane expression of their gender identity.
0: Well, it's really a fascinating piece, and I'm I'm so sorry to think about how necessary this work really is, and that we probably will see an opportunity for this theory to be tested at some point. But I encourage our listeners to check out the article. Any other takeaways about your findings that you want to share with our listeners today? I think my
2: last note on this dovetails nicely with what you just mentioned. It's really sad that this is what we have to be doing in court right now. And it's a scary time for a lot of queer people. But the takeaway that I've had in doing all of these deep, like i've I've done such a deep dive on on this case law and gender affirming care, case law in general. and the the hate is losing. they They almost never get any wins in the federal courts. And many of the decisions um, pausing or overturning these anti-health care laws have been written by Trump appointed judges. And so I think that um, the takeaway that I would end on is that there's a lot of hope right now.
0: Hope is something that we certainly need as we close out Pride Month. I should mention that this is being recorded on June 29th. So we're still waiting for that 303 decision from the Supreme Court as well. Well, my thanks to Professor Leonard and to Parker for joining us today. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Apple Music or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Happy Pride, everyone.